listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. It's a great joy to be here with you this morning in, in this different capacity. Um, and I'm so thankful to Pastor Meldon and our elders for giving me this opportunity to open God's word with you here this morning. Uh, and so you can open your Bibles to the book of Psalms and we'll be looking at the 51st Psalm. So Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming down the aisle now with Bibles and pens in their hands and you can just raise your hand and we'd love to get a copy of God's word uh, to to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, this is our gift to you. So would you take that home, read it, marinate in God's word. Harvest Kids, we're glad that you're here this morning. The ushers are handing out kids packs. We want you to be able to track with us here this morning and, and we pray uh, and it's our hope that God's word would minister to you this morning as well. So I've lived here for just over two years and my wife Natalie joined me just a year after that. And uh, what you might not know about us is, or you might know, is that we are pretty much homebodies. So other than when people visit us, and so we have friends and family from out of town, when they visit us, that's really the only time that we'll actually go out and explore the city. Um, and so we're very thankful when we have guests come over and family come over for more than that reason itself, though. Um, so when they do come over, the scene usually goes like this. We're exploring the city, we're, we're seeing the sights, um, but oftentimes we come to this point when I'm finally um, disclosing to them that not all is as it seems, uh, that beneath this veneer of breathtaking vistas and, and well-designed homes and thriving businesses is an escalating number of drug overdoses, homelessness, gangs, just overall brokenness. Uh, this city, however, does a great job in portraying a city that is envious to its visitors. This duality this inconsistency between an outward appearance and inward reality is not limited just to the city. I think of its people, uh, a region filled with often successful businessmen and, and women, large homes, multiple cars, and yet be hidden behind it is a struggling marriage, an overbearing husband, a harsh wife, the disobedient child, the overwhelming debt, and the secret addiction. Now, I don't want us to think that we're excluded in this, myself included. The thickest masks often seem to be worn on a Sunday morning. Uh, when we as a people gather together like this and, and yet portray this image of having it all together. Yet, just the night before, we've fought with our spouse and we haven't made it right. That this very morning, we've been quick and harsh with our kids to try and get them here on time. That throughout the week, we've been feeding our flesh and our lusts and our passions. And yet, when we look around, we'll see people raising their hands, lifting up their voices, singing, and, and there's no sign of this inward reality. This ought not to be, loved ones. We've convinced ourselves that as long as what we're portraying, what others are seeing us do, if that's in line with what we are doing, uh, then, then it's all right. But loved ones, this is hypocrisy, and this is where it becomes a problem. There is one who sees beyond the physical, beyond the outward appearance. God sees our heart. And that's the, that's the real core of today's message that God sees my heart. It's not what's on the surface that matters, but more than that, it's God having a, a clear vision, but more than that, it's God's after my heart. And why? Because our hearts must be purified so that we can truly worship the Lord. Why is this a big issue this morning? Because a heart that belongs to God is a life lived pleasing Him. The heart is the deepest core of who we are. It's the center of our beings. Out of it flows our will. So what we do, our affections, what we feel, our emotions, but also our thoughts, what we think. So the heart is all-encompassing. It's the deepest core of who we are. So if God has our hearts, then he has everything. If God has our hearts, then out of that flows a life pleasing to him. So now we're going to turn to Psalm 51, uh, and so would you follow along with me? So hear now the words of our living God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will be not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God is this, loved ones, a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." So right now we're really jumping into the middle of a story that, that many who read the psalm know the background of. Um, and so if you look at the text in your Bible, you'll see at the very top above verse 1, there's this subtitle in all capitals. This is actually part of the text and it gives us insight to the context of this psalm. So let me read that for us here today. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this psalm is a psalm of David. And, and, and this context that we see is David, the king of Israel, when he was remaining home during a season of battle, he succumbs to his lust and then commits adultery with the wife of one of his mighty men, leading to her pregnancy. And so in this big plan to, to cover it up, he ends up killing the husband Uriah and taking the wife Bathsheba to be his own. And in this, he actually seems like to the, those who are looking in from the outside to be a hero. Here's the king taking in the widowed wife of a fallen soldier. But the Lord sees the heart. The Lord is after our hearts. And so the Lord sends the prophet Nathan. And using a story, he gets David to condemn his own sin. And he's confronted with his actions. This passage that we've just read, Psalm 51, is David's response then to being confronted by his sin. So David's psalm gives us a great framework. A king broken by his sin, casting himself without reserve into the hands of the Lord. And so we're going to see throughout the psalm a framework how we ourselves approach the Lord. And so our first point here this morning my request, A, I hope only in the Lord. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so David, being confronted by his sin, recognizes his first and primary need, and which is what? His cleansing. He realizes that his sin has defiled him before a holy God. If all of the Old Testament laws could be summed up in one phrase, is that God is holy. All of the sacrifices, all of the rituals that needed to be accomplished, all of the different items that were prescribed to the people of Israel pointed to the fact that God is holy and transcendent and that we, uh, we aren't. And so David is confronted by his sin and sees a holy God and sees his sin. And so he casts himself totally upon the mercy and love of God. And this is what he grounds his request in. 
He said, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy, would you deal with me? Notice what David does not do. David doesn't bring up his position as king. Uh, David doesn't bring up his reputation as as someone who's noble and, and benevolent as a leader. He doesn't recount all his various deeds as a warrior. David, in fact, grounds his request in the very person of God. In fact, David's address of the Lord is very similar to how God has revealed himself to Moses. Uh, Take a look at Exodus 34. The verse is going to be on the screen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So David grounds his hope in God's own declaration of his own faithfulness in the past to his people. God dealt with Israel as Moses so quickly reminds the people in the book of Deuteronomy that God saved them, the people of Israel, not because of anything that they've done. In fact, God says, you're the least of all the people. God says, I've saved you because of my love, because of his abounding steadfast love. 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 And so this is what we must do when we're and confronted by our sin. We must be driven to trust and hope only in the Lord and only in the steadfast love of the Lord displayed through his works to us. Why is this important, loved ones? Why must we be reminded of this simple truth over and over again? Because our tendency is to claim that somehow we have earned God's favor to us, that somehow something we've done has merited God's favor. So it, it was Christmas time, and uh, one of my friends had spent a good amount of money and time picking out the perfect gift and, and expensive gifts for their siblings. And so it came time, Christmas came around, and, and my friend, uh, with, with great excitement, delivers the gifts to their siblings. And in return, my friend only received a a pen and a mug. And so this friend, uh, her response was that of of disappointment, of anger. What should have been an outflow of uh, of a demonstration of their love for their siblings became uh, a grounds to demand something more. And this is what we do with God. This is what we do. We believe that if we've given enough during the offering, that if we serve in multiple ministries, that we, if we have the appearance of daily disciplines in the word and in prayer, that if our attendance at church is unwavering, that if we live our lives in the service of others, that if our relationship with our family and our friends is this perfect picture of harmony, that, and, and this list goes on and on and on, Uh, We believe that if we've done these things, that if we've achieved these things, that somehow we've earned the favor of God. To hope only in the Lord is to cast those things aside and recognize that God cannot be coerced or persuaded by our works. God must deal with us according to his own steadfast love and mercy. For us as believers, loved ones, He has done this. God, in his mercy and grace, Paul says in Ephesians, moved by his love, not by anything that we have done, he's accomplished redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, moved by his love and abundant grace. So like David, we bank only on God's mercy and his love. We can't trust in ourselves. We throw ourselves completely into the hands of God who is steadfast in his love and abundant in his mercy. What happens when we truly grasp this? First thing is we grow in humility before God. If we've realized that nothing we do has earned us favor before him in the first place, we realize that nothing we can do will out us from his love because his love is motivated by his own character, his own nature. This also gives us freedom from striving. Uh, we, we do not work, we do not live and obey to earn the favor of God, but out of a response to his love that he's shown us. So it gives us humility before God and it gives us freedom from striving. Here already we see though attention building. And we will see it continue to build as we work our way through this psalm that David casts himself, if you notice, not on the full nature of God, but 
on his mercy and his steadfast love. David knows what the justice of God entails. So this address that David makes that's very close and and a, a picture of God and his address to Moses, it goes on to say this. Again, it will be up on the screen. God keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children and to the third and fourth generation. So David appeals to the mercy of God, yet knows fully what the justice of God would mean for him. So David, it seems as though throughout the psalm that David is ignoring the justice of God. We'll see this tension continue to build, and so I want you to keep your eyes and ears out for this as we move through the psalm. So David must deal with us, or sorry, the Lord must deal with us according to his steadfast love and abundant mercy. But why? Why? Because, second point, I see the size of my sin. Look at verses 3 to 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David is driven to hope only in the Lord. He sees the size of his sin. His sin is a mountain next to the molehill that is his good works. So David offers absolutely no excuse for his sin, except he he just totally owns up to his sin and his offenses. I think of how quick we are to offer up excuses for our sin. I think of the student who who cheats on their test and says, you know, everyone's doing it. What's wrong with it? Or or I think of the gossip that's dressed up as sharing prayer requests. How often we, uh, we put up these excuses to lessen the size of sin in our eyes. So David here in these, these verses utterly destroy any excuse that we may have for our sin to lessen its size in our eyes. And this is why it's important because it's a right vision of sin that drives us to the Lord and drives us to hope only in him. So here are four common excuses that by the word of God here this morning are exposed as empty and hollow. I encourage you to write these down and um, we'll go through them one by one. Excuse number one, it wasn't me. That's an excuse we often use. David could have easily brought up this excuse and said, hey, it wasn't my fault that, David, uh, that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof in the middle of the day. It was my walk and she just happened to be there. Excuse number two, it wasn't that bad. It's not like David killed someone. Wait, yes, he did. His sin was big. Excuse number three, it was an accident. Excuse number four, I didn't know. I didn't know what I did was wrong. But here's the reality that David brings up. He, look at David's response. We're going to go through verses 3 to 6, and, and we'll see how each of these excuses are exposed as empty and hollow. And, and we can't use those excuses to lessen the uh, size of sin in our eyes. Here's the reality for the first excuse. It is my sin. Verse 3. Uh, take a look at verse 3. For I know my sin, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You can't say it wasn't me. It is, it's my sin. Reality number two, it, my sin is against God. It offends God. Verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Reality number three, I'm not surprised by my sin. I know, I know my heart. I know my heart. I'm not surprised by my sin. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And reality number 4, I sinned with knowledge. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
So all of these excuses, David sees his sin and the size of it and realizes that he can offer no excuse before the Lord, that it was my sin. It was not just against anybody, it was against the Lord. And I'm not surprised by it. I know my heart and its tendency towards sin. And I, and I sinned with complete knowledge. David can't plead ignorance. We can't plead ignorance. So David rightly assesses his sin. Here's the thing. When the excuses that we use to distance ourselves from our sin, uh, when they're gone, we come face to face with the reality of the size of our sins. And it's huge. It's huge. Put it this way. Mount Everest can look pretty small when you're miles and miles away and you're really squinting your eye and measuring the size of the mountain with your thumb. But when the distance is gone and you're brought to the base of the mountain, you're overwhelmed by its enormity. In the same way, when all our excuses are gone, we see the size of our sin. And it's the size of our sin that drives us then to hope in the Lord. So though, though this point may be heavy, seeing our sin isn't fun. Let this thought comfort us though, that being able to see our sin is a grace from God. That if we've been given, if we have been given vision for the blindness towards sins that we were not once aware of, consider that grace. God in his love for us has not let us continue in a way that will lead to death, but has given us vision by the light of his word so that we may run to him. Al Mohler says this, um, the quote is up on the screen, the creature is not owed revelation. Revelation is actually one of the first and clearest demonstrations of the fact that God is love. God loves us so much that he did not leave us in the dark and in ignorance concerning himself and ourselves. And so do you feel the weight of your sin this morning? And if you do, you might be asking me the question, how, how is this grace? How is being able to see our sin grace? Consider it this way, that when you're in your workplace, you're on the bus, you're walking down the street, you're in your classrooms, the likelihood is many of those around you do not know the Lord. And the scriptures say of them as it was of us at one point in our lives that we walked in sin, we delighted in it, and that we weren't even aware of our offense before God. So consider grace that the Lord has given you eyes to see your sin so that you may run to him with great hope in who he is. If we've become aware of our bitterness towards our employer or our quickness to anger with our children, our tendency to gossip with our friends, praise God for the grace of vision. May we not ignore it, but instead let the light of God's word expose it for what it truly is and drive us to him. When we've seen our sin, brothers and sisters, we, we also grow in graciousness to one another. We realize that we're all on level ground, that none of us has merited any favor from the Lord apart from his grace, steadfast love, and mercy. And so when we truly see our sin, our love for one another, our love for the lost just grows. So see your sin, see the immensity of it, and be overwhelmed by sin's ugliness. But do not remain there. Let it drive us to the Lord. And would we like David in this psalm then move into pleading for radical change? Look at verses 7 to 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit. So David, being driven to cling to the Lord in the light of his sin, gets to the very core of his request, and it's this, the plea for radical change. David understands that we cannot presume upon God's mercy, but this is a work that he must do. 
Take a look at the words that David uses in his request. I'll, I'll read it out again, but I encourage you to look at the text. Purge me, wash me, let me hear joy, hide your face, blot it out, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, cast me not away and take not your Holy Spirit, uphold me. Many of these actions that David is requesting is, is very similar and alluding to ceremonial cleansing of the Old Testament. David sees and understands how his sin has defiled him before a holy and pure God. And he desires that the Lord would work in him. And these actions also show us that these aren't things that David is hoping that he himself can do. These are all requests and, and, and prayers for the Lord to work in him. God, would you do these things in me? The requests here that we see in these verses are twofold. One, David wants the removal of his sin. But two, he wants the renewal of his heart. So firstly, my sin must be removed. Look at the words, purge me of it, wash me of it, hide your face, blot it out. It's my sin that has separated me from God. So it's only when my offenses are removed that I have the hope of restored fellowship with the Lord. Secondly, my heart must be made clean. I understand that my sin is a result of my heart. And so like David, we understand that we cannot simply hope to have some behavioral modification or, or change some habits or, or transform what we think of on our own. David understands that the very core of who we are, our hearts from which flow our, our, our will, our thoughts, and our affections must be changed. But here's the thing. It's not just changed. Look at the word David uses, create in me a clean heart. It's not just simply change it or modify it or renovate it like you would do with the house. It's create in, in me a new heart. I need a new one, a new heart that desires to walk in obedience. This is what the passage is getting at, loved ones. Listen closely. If my heart is the source, I need the Lord to create a clean heart in me. Because if my heart is new, True obedience and love for the Lord and for others will result in my life. I don't want just restored fellowship. I want to continue to walk in fellowship, to love the Lord, and to walk and obey Him. This is true obedience, or sorry, this is true repentance. Not a simple disowning of past actions and offenses, but a desire to walk in continued fellowship and obedience of the Lord. The image here is that of a tree, a tree that is producing dead and rotting fruit. Our desire shouldn't be that, that God would come and search through the branches and pick out the dead and dying fruit and, and think that that's enough. What David's getting at here in these verses is that God would not only remove that which is dead, but remove that very tree. That in its place that God would plant a new one that produces new fruit that digs its roots deep into the word of God. In light of this, a warning is warranted. If we claim to have a new heart and yet produce no new fruit, we must examine ourselves to see whether indeed we have received a new heart. Because our desire must be a new heart leading to new fruit. With the weight of this need, the question then arises. I know it did for me, and I hope that this question is arising in your hearts as well. How then do we get a new heart? Loved ones, take a look at Hebrews 10. Uh, the verse is going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read it out for you and let this be an encouragement. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Loved ones, the blood of Jesus Christ is the cure for our filthy hearts. That the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us and by faith we enter in to restored fellowship with the Lord. 
We're purified by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and our new hearts are created in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we enter into all of this by faith. So loved ones, take heart. Take heart that the Lord, if you have trusted in him by faith, has produced in you a new heart that, that is growing and taking root deep into the word of God and producing new and living fruit. So as we continue in David's prayer, uh, we've seen that we are to cast ourselves totally upon the mercy and love of God and, and that only. That as we do so, we do so because we see the size of our sin. And then as we plead for radical change, now as new covenant believers, we receive the work of Christ in faith and then we resolve, uh, we determine to respond in praise. Take a look at verse 13 to 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So David determines that the proper response in light of God's steadfast love and mercy is to praise the Lord. This is what we must do when we understand the immensity of mercy and grace that the Lord has shown us in the face of our sin. We must rightly respond with praise. We as Christians, and I do this very often, I've convinced myself, we have convinced ourselves that in downplaying the holiness of God and therefore the offense of sin, we're making the message of the gospel more palatable and and that we'll get a greater response from ourselves, from others we share with. But we have to remember, we have to understand that only when we have a high view of God's holiness that we see the immensity and the size of our offense and in turn see the magnitude of God's love and mercy displayed in the face of that. And because of that, we, we respond with proportional praise. Note the words that David uses in, in these verses. Verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways. I will teach. Verse 14, Open my lips and my mouth, oh sorry, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And then verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Look at the words used. I will teach, I will sing, I will declare, God, open my lips. All these words point towards a response that is public, a response within the community of faith, a response that is loud, that requires us to open our mouth and use our voices. A restoration of the inward heart leads to a response that is public, a response that is communal and evangelistic. So firstly, communal, this means that when we gather together on a Sunday morning like this, that the conversations that we have out in the lobby aren't simply centered around the the latest trip that we had with our family or, or the movie we saw last week, but we're recounting the grace of God in our lives. That as we meet throughout the week in, in small group communities, uh, we're, we're talking about the steadfast love and the mercy of God and the grace that we, we need to live lives pleasing to him. It's also a response that is evangelistic. Our worship must extend beyond simply the community of faith. Our testimony of how the Lord showed us great mercy and pardon in the face of our sin is, it must be shared with others who are also in the position of need. This means that we're taking every opportunity to share with our coworkers, our family, and our friends. We are bringing them face to face with the holiness of God so that they may see the size of their sin and they likewise might run to the Lord, the only Savior. One thing uh, you need to understand about my wife Natalie is that she, she loves sharing food. Uh, one thing you need to understand about me is I don't. 
I don't like sharing food. Uh, so earlier on in our relationship, when we were dating or we'd go out for, for meals together, uh, I so disliked sharing my food that I'd wait for her to order and then order the exact same thing so that I wouldn't have to share my plate because there'd be no reason to. Um, because her heart was to experience as much of the menu and enjoy as much as possible. Uh, nevertheless, regardless of that, Natalie loves sharing and getting me to try new food. And she's been successful. Um, she's gotten me to not only eat and like these things, uh, she's gotten me to eat squash. I haven't before I started dating her. Uh, I ate sushi and I ate kale. Those are all evidences of her success that she was able to get me to try those things and not only try them, but to enjoy them. Here's the thing, her desire is for me to experience the joy that she experiences when she's eating these things. She wants me to, to taste what she has so enjoyed tasting. Evangelism is, is like that. We are calling people to enter into the joy that we've so experienced in Christ. We have to understand that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is no hope in the world for those who are lost. And so we have experienced the greatest joy, more than anything food or, or relationships could offer. The Lord has shown us and given us great joy. And so our response must be to call people, enjoy what I am tasting. Psalm 34 verse 8 says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. But here's the requirement. We can't call others to enjoy what we have not enjoyed ourselves. So the call must be to you. Are you tasting and enjoying the sweetness of our Savior? Have you seen his mercy and his grace displayed for you in the cross of Jesus Christ? And if you have, are you calling others to enter into that joy as well? True evangelism is done by those who have themselves tasted of the goodness of God. And so in response to God's love and, and his mercy and his kindness to us, we've, what we've said, we've resolved to deter, and we've determined to respond in worship. And so as we continue in this psalm, we need to understand where true worship comes from. Verse 16 to 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So upon resolving to respond with praise, David moves on to now reflect on where true worship even flows from. God wants my heart. This, is, this was the, the, the point that we were making right from the beginning, that God wants my heart. He's not appeased or satisfied by simple sacrifices. In fact, the psalm right before this makes it very clear. Let me read a couple of verses from it, from Psalm 50. This is God speaking. He says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, a cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the answer is obviously no. The Lord isn't after simple sacrifices. The Lord desires a heart that is turned towards him. And so David moves from this outward expression of praise. He says, you know, I'm going to teach. I'm going to sing. I'm going to declare. He moves from that to understand the inward reality of a worshiping heart. Two conclusions that we can make from these verses. Really quickly, I can sacrifice, I can worship, I can work all I want to, but if my heart is not turned towards him, if my heart is not the Lord's, he's not pleased with it. But also, if my heart is the Lord's, if my heart belongs to him, if it's turned to him, God delights in what I do. God delights in my sacrifices. He delights in my worship. 
This is what it comes to. A good friend of mine put it this way, and it, and it really clearly states what, what this, this passage is really about. God desires proper hearts of worship over proper forms of worship. That God desires proper hearts of worship over proper forms of worship. Often we, re, we read these verses and we don't really consider the weight behind them. This is a, a verse that we'll often see on a, as a caption under an Instagram post or we paint it onto a piece of rustic reclaimed barn wood before we post it on the wall so that everyone can see it. Do we really feel the weight of these verses? Let me read it again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And here's where the weight of that comes in. Here's the dilemma. The natural heart is not inclined towards God. The natural heart, apart from the grace of God, is inclined to be satisfied with outward appearances. But believer, take heart. That by faith you have entered into the work of Jesus Christ and, and the verse that we've discussed before. That by his blood we have been purified and that by his spirit we've been enabled to walk in obedience. And so with a new heart, loved ones, here's the thing. You can participate and respond in true worship. You can respond in true worship because your heart has been renewed. And so in receiving by faith and responding now in true worship, we conclude now in this final two verses, we embrace the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David concludes this psalm with a great hope in God who is great. David says, God, you must deal with us in your mercy and that as you do so, our hearts are renewed and that we're able to offer worship that is acceptable. God, you must do it. Now the psalm ends this way. The psalm doesn't record for us uh, a response from the Lord or even a, a resolution on behalf of David. The psalm ends like this for us. The psalm ends in a place of absolute longing and, and dependence upon God, asking for him to respond. God, would you deal with your people out of the abundance of your grace and steadfast love? We can't do it. You must. And so though this individual psalm doesn't record for us a response, the, praise God, the rest of scripture does. The, this promise that I'm about to read um, is ours in Christ as new covenant people. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 couple of verses from there are going to be up on the screen. And as I read it, I encourage you, count how many times the Lord says, I will. This is a work that God does in us. So as I read it, count how many times. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes to be careful to obey my rules. This is a wonderful promise of God's amazing providence to us. This is a work that he does for the sake of his name, for the sake of his love, out of the abundance of his grace and mercy. So we embrace the faithfulness of God. What I could have never hoped to do on my own, God has accomplished. God has said that he will do. And so we know that, David, that God dealt with David mercifully. David was a king broken by his sin. And he looked beyond himself and looked forward in faith, a faith that was realized in Christ Jesus, the pure and righteous king, who by his blood purchased for us the reality of a new heart. 
So in the midst of all of this, we've seen a tension that's, that's been unresolved and it's been building up throughout the psalm. Have you noticed it? That, that David casts himself not on the full nature of God, but upon his mercy and steadfast love. So the question arises, how does God then pardon the sinner and yet remain just? How do we receive the grace and mercy of God and, and God not remain the just judge? By what means do we receive a new heart instead of swift condemnation? Notice how David, even in verse 4, notes that God would be completely just and righteous and dealing with him in judgment. David, David knows that there's, there's this tension, that God would be completely just and righteous in dealing with him with swift judgment, yet pleads with God to deal with him in a way that is merciful and gracious. How then is the justice of God satisfied and not ignored? We see even in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that there's no forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. Loved ones, take heart. Paul in Romans chapter 3 explains that God has proved himself righteous by satisfying the demands for the wrath uh, of God in the death of his son in our place. That the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for us satisfies the requirements of the law and we receive it by faith. So God again has shown himself faithful, not only in supplying the very heart that we needed, but satisfying the wrath of God by giving his son in our place. This is the gospel, loved ones. Would we see the sight of our sin and would it drive us to cast out all things aside and to hope only in the Lord? May we repent and plead for radical change. Would we disown our sin and desire to walk in obedience? Let us cast our eyes upon Christ then. God is pursuing our hearts. God is pursuing a heart that is turned towards him. For our worship to be acceptable, God must, be, God must purify us. And for those of us who have received this by faith, a new heart is our reality. So what then is our response? As we've worked our way through this, this psalm, we've said that we resolve to respond in praise. That should the Lord answer our prayer, that should the Lord hear our cry as we cast ourselves upon his steadfast love and mercy and as we see the defilement of our sin and how it has made us filthy before a holy God and as, as we plead for him to radically change us, we said that if God does this, we are going to respond in praise. And so then, loved ones, if a new heart is then our reality as new covenant believers, as those who are hidden in Christ, we must respond. That, that's, that's a right and proper thing to do. We have resolved to worship publicly, and so we must do so publicly. With many things happening in the world, uh, this weekend, this Thanksgiving weekend, gives us time set apart to truly give thanks. And so this, this weekend and the days that follow and the conversations that we have, whether it be out in the lobby or, or around the table that we have with friends and family, it's right to give thanks for the many things that we've received from the Lord, whether, whether it be a home, clothes on our body, uh, money in our pocket, but even the breath in our lungs. But let's move forward, let's move past that and towards giving thanks and celebrating the amazing work of God uh, in the creating of clean hearts in us by the work of his spirit purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are recipients of grace and mercy from the Lord and of his active work in us by giving us new hearts. And so this, this gives us a reason that goes far beyond the typical reasons that we give as we, you know, the tradition as we go around the table and say what we're thankful for. We should be the most thankful people. We should be the most um, expressive in our gratitude and praise because we have received what we ourselves could have never hoped for or accomplished for ourselves, but it's all what we have received from the Lord. So may this be a time that we, the community of faith, rejoice in salvation. Would we 
use this time and seize every opportunity to share the joy that we have received in Christ. Let us celebrate that God has dealt with us according to the abundance of his grace and mercy and the pardoning of our sin, the removal of it, and the renewal of our hearts. This has led loved ones to restored fellowship and the grace that we need to live lives pleasing to him. So as we wrap up, as we end, we come back to David, a man who after all of this, after this whole ordeal, yet he is still known as a man who is after God's own heart. How, how then did this happen? The Lord exposed his sin and brought him to a place of repentance. David did not bring any excuse for it, owned up to it, and pleaded with the Lord to show him mercy, and in faith looked forward to a faith realized in Christ, who by his blood would purchase this reality for us. And so, let the size and the, the vision of our sin, let it drive us to hope only in Christ. May our plea be that of true repentance. And, in, and when we embrace the faithfulness of God in answering our request, let us live out what we said that we resolved to do. And what we have resolved to do is to respond in worship and in praise. God has made us recipients of his grace so that we might be participants in his praise. God has given us grace. He has created in us a clean heart for the purpose of his glory. So let's respond with that this morning. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for your steadfast love and mercy displayed for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, this moment, uh, this weekend, our whole lives would not be of sufficient time to express adequate praise in response to what you have accomplished for us and in us. You have proved yourself faithful in being the one to answer our prayers, to do the work of creating clean hearts in us, and by your Holy Spirit, causing us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. You have done this for the purpose of the praise of your glorious grace. And so, Lord, help us now to respond in a way that we said we would do. You have shown us undeserving grace, and so this morning, would we live lives uh, as we leave this week, would we live lives uh, as those who respond in unceasing praise? So as we sing now, Lord, we pray that you'd open our lips, that we would sing, that we would declare your grace that you have shown us. You are worthy of it, and so would you receive it this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.